Hey there, freedom-loving carnivores. It's Jeff Dornick from Freedom First Network, and I've got a message for you. Are you tired of feeling like your beef choices are under siege? Well, fellow patriots, it's time to fight back with Prepper All Naturals. That's right, folks. In a world where the beef industry is under constant attack, Prepper All Naturals is here to stand tall and proud as a veteran-owned beacon of quality, taste, and freedom. When the guys at Prepper All Natural set out to provide you with the finest beef products, they knew they had a duty to defend America's beef legacy, and that's why we're proud to partner with them, bringing you the best of what this great land has to offer. Whether it's their succulent freeze-dried beef cubes or their premium freezer boxes packed with steaks and roasts, we're redefining what it means to enjoy beef today and tomorrow. And let me tell you folks, their freeze-dried beef isn't just delicious, it's built to last. With proper stores, their beef cubes can maintain their quality and freshness for up to a decade, ensuring you'll never have to compromise on taste or nutrition. But wait, there's more. They're not just in the business of selling beef. They're in the business of defending freedom. That's why they promise to never sell you anything less than 100% all-American natural beef. No lab-grown imposters, no experimental jabs, and certainly no compromises with the woke agenda. So, fellow beef enthusiasts, join us in our mission to protect America's beef legacy. Visit freedomfirstbeef.com and use code FFM for 15% off your order. Because when you choose Prepper All Naturals, you're not just eating well today, you're eating well tomorrow. And together... We'll ensure that beef remains a symbol of freedom for generations to come. Prep for all naturals, where beef meets freedom. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Normally tonight, we would be airing here on Friday a Battlefront Frontline Live episode. Tonight will be different. Instead, we're going to air a special Battlefront Broadcasting Live Field Report episode. Many of you know that we have been airing episodes of these interviews from the Halt Hospital Homicide event in San Antonio, Texas. We've aired lawyers, we've aired doctors, and we have aired people who are friends and family and also victims of hospital protocols that led to injuries and deaths. Well, tonight we will be airing two more. Back to back. Now, these two are very special. And many of you are probably asking yourself while we're airing these, when you say that you've already known that these things occur. And what is the issue with us doing that? Well, I ask you this why hasn't anything completely been done? And why are these people still allowed to go on after what occurred there? These two interviews next are very intricate and detailed. And you will hear tonight the deception, the retaliation, the kidnapping, and the murder of these next known victims. The two people that are interviewed tonight are going to deliver you a dark story of what occurred there and what has happened in the hospital system when you are an advocate and have a loved one there. And these things have occurred even before then because there are laws in many states that have allowed the hospitals to take control over the patient and make the final decisions, including here in Texas. And that's what's led to these things. And when you listen to these, ask yourself why it's okay to prep that pen up what happened. And why, in the name of protecting other people, were they allowed to commit these crimes? Ask yourself this as you listen. And you decide for yourself 
what needs to be done as you hear these details. Thank you for joining us. Tonight, we air a special PFB Live Field Report. Don't go away. You must know the truth. San Antonio at the Hospital Homicide. We are running through it and getting the stories of the victims. And the victims are the most important part of this event because we need to have the truth out there. And many of them have been coming on here, telling us their stories and helping us to understand what happened so that you can understand, so that you can know this, so that you can keep this going and have something done about it. And it all starts with you. And this welcome. David DeLuca to the program. Tell us a little bit about yourself, sir. I'm a 28-year Air Force veteran. I was a pilot um, for all those 28 years. And I currently continue to work in a contracting uh, venue for the Air Force. And I teach uh, pilot simulator instruction, emergency procedure instruction for the Air Force right now. As a contractor. I was married to my wife, Colleen. DeLuca for, we got married in 1977, and I was married to her for one month shy of 44 years before she died due to these protocols. I'd known her for 46 years. We had uh, six children together, and we have now, we have um, 12 grandchildren. Oh, great. Yeah, now, now we have 12. So, if we didn't when she passed, but we do now. So, well, tell us a little bit of what happened here with Colin. Well, Colleen did have a few pre-existing conditions, but they were well-documented and well-monitored. As a matter of fact, one of her conditions required her to be uh, prescribed hydroxychloroquine, which she took at a large dose, but it was monitored twice a day. So based on that fact, when we knew, pro, um, I should say, when we knew COVID was spreading, and to tell you how close to the uh, spread of the disease those individuals I worked with, most of them or many of them were and still are to this day, airline pilots, many of them flying overseas into China with, let's just say early on, one of our friends texts a picture of himself being flown back home from China with a Chinese citizen sitting next to him, wrapped up in bubble wrap and a mask. He took a picture of the individual and sent it back to his friends and said, do you think I'm going to get COVID? And which he did the next day or the day a few days later, he was diagnosed with COVID. So we knew it was coming. Based on that fact, knowing my wife's previous conditions, we got smart on COVID. We said, okay, we are going to start researching as much as we can about the treatments. When we came out, we looked at the doctor, and I believe it was in France who was saying, I'm treating COVID 
successfully with hydroxychloroquine, with azithromycin, with vitamin D, with vitamin C. I said, okay, this is great. Then we heard about Dr. Zelenko and his protocols coming out of Orange County, New York. And we got smart with those protocols. So we were taking, looked at, we looked at everything that she was taking, what we were taking. We increased her C on the day. We take it, we took it normally anyway. We increased her D. We took it normally anyway. She had hydroxychloroquine. She took, uh, uh, omega-3 fatty acids to help thin the blood. Vitamin C is a blood thinner. So we were not, I should say, ignorant on how to treat this. We, we did what we could. We protected her. We protected myself. I'm also, I have some, some medical issues. So we protected one another, but we didn't stop living. So what ended up happening was uh, we went to a family wedding. And then when we got home from the wedding, it was out of state. We, we reside in New Jersey. Please don't hold that as against us. And we uh, came home and she started developing cough. And she was concerned because one of our daughters and her family, husband and two children lived with us. At the time, this is back in September of 21, our, I should say, one of our older granddaughters had come to stay with us for a while. She's getting out on her own. We believe that she had COVID months earlier. She had told us, you know, our daughter, her mom also had said the same thing. So she was fairly comfortable with being there. And my, we looked at my wife and we said, do you have it? Do you think we have it? I don't know. Let's call, we call her pulmonologist. And so we called the pulmonologist and he said, you know what? It sounds like you're having an asthma attack. Increase your asthma medications, nebulizer, I, um, albuterol, so forth and so on. And what are you doing? What else are you doing? So we told him what we were doing as far as vitamin protocols. He said, I'm going to give you a steroid. I'm going to give you azithromycin. So kept going, kept going, kept going. I was in the local area at the time working out of uh, Philadelphia for that just that week. And we were so... I should say, uh, I'll backtrack. We were so worried about her and myself and the family that we had our own pulse oximeters, pulse oximeters. So we were taking her pulse ox on a daily basis. She ran low, normally low anyway because of her asthmatic condition. So she was running between 92 and 94 normally, whereas a, a normal person without a problem like that would be have a saturation level of 98 or higher, 98 to 100, 100 being the highest, as you, as you can, can guess. So we... <laughs> monitored that and the, the pulmonologist asked us what her, 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 her vital was, her oxygen was. We, we informed him of that. He said, if it drops into the mid-80s, you need to go to the hospital. So we said, all right, we'll watch it. She said, he said, yeah, I don't think you have COVID, but we'll just keep treating it in the same manner that we're treating it. It turned out to be the same. The treatment for her asthma attack was the same thing he wanted us to continue with just in case she had COVID. So this was in the weekend of September 20th. I believe the 22nd was a Tuesday. I went to work in Philly, came home, helping her take care of her. That night, I looked at her. I was looking at her crookedly. She said, what's the matter? And I said, I, I don't feel good. I went up to, I have to go to bed. I went upstairs and I went to bed. Next morning, I got up. I said, I'm going straight to urgent care. I tested. I had COVID. And based on the, the time frame, and based on our symptoms, even though it was never genetically mapped, we're pretty sure we both had the Delta variant because that was the predominant variant at the time. And that being said, I called her pulmonologist. 
And he called right back and said, okay, if you have COVID, she's got COVID. You don't need to test her. We're going to increase the albuterol treatments. We're going to continue with the Z-Pack, continue with the steroid, upper vitamin D, upper vitamin C, keep it going. Watch your oxygen. If our oxygen falls into the mid-80s, send it to the hospital. So we were looking at the protocols again, making sure we were taking what we need. Day, a couple of days go by. It's the Thursday now. She's trying to go to sleep. She can't lay down. She can't lay backwards. And she, all she wanted to do was go to bed. She just wanted to go to sleep. And I, and I said, honey, every time you lay down, your oxygen's dropping to the mid-80s. You know what the doctor said. Mid-80s, you need to go to the hospital. And she looked at me and she said, if you send me to the hospital, I'm going to die there. Those were her exact words. She looked me right in the, right in the eye. I was married to her for one month. She had 44 years. We knew one another for 46. And she looked at me and she said, if you send me there, I'm going to die there. And I looked at her and I said, if I send you, don't send you there, you might die here in the bed. I said, as I said earlier, my two granddaughters, grand, I'm sorry, my two grandchildren, two of my grandchildren were living with us at the time. My third one was with us. I said, you, want to, you might die in front of your grandchildren. Do you want to die in front of your grandchildren? Now, mind you, I was sick myself trying to quarantine with her in the same room. And she finally let me send her. So I sent her. Now, at that point in time, her O2 levels were no less, when she was sitting up, were no less than 92. But when she would lay down, they dropped to 86. She was a shallow breather anyway. She was a high risk for apnea. So she was always, she was wearing a nasal pap. And I'm like, okay, let's just put you on oxygen. Keep, keep you on the nasal pap now. And, and she would lay down. Really, we should have just let her sit rather than lay down. That went into my decision and her decision to send her to the hospital. She acquiesced to my desire to send her. Because if she would have put up a fight and said, no, I'm not going, I would never have sent her. But she, she just, she said, you know, all right, you think it's best. I'll go. So we called the ambulance and the ambulance uh, came. One of the ambulance EMTs basically said, don't worry, Mrs. DeLuca. You looking great. Oxygen's not bad. You'll be there a couple of days, put you on oxygen and you'll be, you'll go home. And she never came home. So she went in on Thursday, the 24th of September. And at that point in time, I sent the word out to the family and because I had two of the kids, Colorado, two in, in the Ohio, Dayton, Ohio area, one in Northern Kentucky, and one with us. So prayers were going out from church, parish priests calling, you know, we need to get priests there to, to, you know, to, 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 uh, devoutly Catholic. We'd like to be considered devoutly Catholic. My wife was so devout that she had become a fully vowed third order Carmelite, this child's Carmelite. And People get confused about that. You know, you can't be married. That's that's she's a third order. She she took vows, but she was allowed to to remain in her current state of life. She's just had that much religious fervor and her love for for Christ. So, um, prayers went out. You know, information went out to the church. Her father coordinated getting the priest up there to 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 bless her, give her holy communion. We we had prayer vigils everywhere. Thousands of people were praying for her. Thousands. Of people were praying for, but I was so sick at the time. My kids had to do the coordinating after that. And I could text, but I just really couldn't do much because I really was sick from the virus. Um, I was also taking my protocol plus medication and went from there. So she remained in the hospital. Little to my knowledge that she, she literally was put on the, from the ER room. She went to a step down ward. And I did not know till later on that the doctors 
at the step-down ward tried to convince her to get the vaccine. She was unvaccinated. I am unvaccinated. I ne- my whole family is unvaccinated. And they tried to convince her to get the vaccine. And she, she would say to me, she'd relay this to me in Texas. Like, why, you know, why were they, why would they even ask me to do that? I'm already sick. What's that going to help? And uh, then they were trying to convince her that she needed to go on a vent. She, then they were supposed to put her on, they told her, we want you to put, put you on rendesivir. And she said, no. And I remember that was one of the things, last things I'd said to her. And she was sitting outside the front yard on the gurney, waiting for them to ready the ambulance to put her in. I walked down to her, kissed her on the head, forehead, blessed her. I said, I love you. But prior to that, I said, don't let them give you remdesivir. I sent them with a copy of our power of attorney, medical power of attorney, which I had, I held for her with her. They said, you make sure you see that they see it and make a copy of it, but don't let them take it out of your hands. Folks, listen up. I've got something crucial to share with you today. In this uncertain world, you need to be prepared for anything, especially when it comes to your health. That's where the wellness company comes in, offering you peace of mind in a box with their medical emergency kit. Picture this. You're faced with a medical emergency and you need quick, effective treatment. The wellness company's medical emergency kit is like having a strategic arsenal of life-saving medications right at your fingertips. From proven treatments like ivermectin to generic Z-Packs and amoxicillin, this kit has got you covered. But that's not all. Every kit comes with a medical emergency guidebook, ensuring you have the knowledge to use these medications safely and effectively. It's like having a medical professional right there with you when you need it most. And here's the kicker. Use code FFN to get 10% off your medical emergency kit at twc.health FFN. That's right, folks. 10% off, peace of mind in a box. Don't wait until it's too late. Get your medical emergency kit today and be ready for whatever comes your way. Stay safe, stay prepared with a wellness company. Again, use code FFN to get 10% off your medical emergency kit at twc.health FFN. Because we did not trust the medical field at the time, did not trust the hospitals. And um, so we still don't trust the hospitals. We took, we took them, she took the information and she went. And so they put her on the step down ward and then we got in motion. I started contacting people and I, one of my dear, one of our dear friends said a text and said, can you get ivermectin? I said, no, I don't know where to get it. Sent me the name of an individual. Contacted the doctor the next day, two days ago, two days, I think it was the weekend. Went through telemed, took care of all the information. I was paid, became a patient, she became a patient, and we got ivermectin. Called the hospital. The hospital would call me once in a while and say, um, this is what's going on. And I said, well, I want to give my wife ivermectin. And then I said, oh, I want to at least try. No, we don't, we don't believe in that. And that's the last conversation we get. I called my GP. I said, let me use ivermectin for her. We just need to try it. Okay. Now the data doesn't show that it works, so I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna fight for that. Okay, fine. Another individual said to me, "Well, why don't we? There's a lawyer out there. I think I might have read about it in, in the Epic Times. I think it was. There's a lawyer out there who is um, practices in New York, and I know I can mention his name because I talked to his wife uh, a few weeks ago, and she said you can use our name. His name is uh, Mr. Uh, Ralph Rigo." in New York. He's fighting for patients. He's fighting to allow the use of ivermectin. I contacted him. I said, will you take me as a client, my wife as a client, so we can try to force the hospital to to, to allow my wife to try ivermectin? And 
he said, yes, took me on his client. And we, we started working on all the paperwork, did all the paperwork, but I, he did, couldn't practice in New Jersey. So I had to find a lawyer who would present the papers, the complaint to a judge and have the judge um, then rule on it and then allow, if he ruled in my favor, allow us to present the ivermectin and use the ivermectin. Meantime, while I'm trying to work out with a lawyer, I'm still sick. My wife is still sick. My kids are sick. Everybody in the house had contracted COVID at the time, except my my 18-year-old granddaughter. She had COVID previously uh, about six months earlier, four months earlier. Excuse me if I get the time wrong. But she did not get it with COVID at this time. But my son-in-law was in the house. He contracted it. And he had gone to another hospital. He had to go to the emergency room to another hospital. And they just, they actually admitted him and they put him on oxygen. He was, he, he ended up recovering in, on, from there. But to continue my wife's story while this is happening, uh, my daughter who had COVID, she was trying to take care of the two grandchildren and me and herself. My granddaughter was helping her take care of the three of us. And my other children were trying to coordinate, trying to get, you know, uh, my wife had gone up to the hospital without a phone cord. We tried to get a phone cord to her. We couldn't talk to her. It was so convenient. We could only, she could, they would only let my wife charge her phone a little bit with somebody else's cord. And then she would send us a quick text and so forth. We finally got the phone cord up to her. Um, and, as this is progressing, I get a call on the 28th of September. It's my wife. And she's crying. And she said, they're going to put me on a vent. I'm going to die here. Uh, I love you. Uh, bury me with my ceremonial scapula. So, I'm sorry. Take your time. And I tried to keep my head and I said, I love you too. You will fight this. God is on your side. Okay, good. So God is on your side. So that was it. I, you know, I called the kids and said, "Mom's, mom's going to an event," and they were like, "Dad, don't let them do it." I said, "I, I don't have any, I don't have any choice." So my daughter, one of the daughters in Colorado, contacted the floor nurse. I gave them the information. Went to the hospital. She was in contact with the floor nurse on the ICU, literally yelling at this nurse that they needed to let me come up once I was over my COVID, which I was over my COVID at the time. I was getting better. I had already gone through the 10 days of, of 10 days from documented infection. So it was beyond the contagious period or the period of contagion. And they finally, four days, wasn't until like four days later that they finally let me go up on the, on the ICU floor. They said, well, we'll let you up 15 minutes at a shot. And but all you can do is stand outside a room. And um, the nurses up there let me stay a little longer than that, you know, much to their, um, uh, much, much to my, my, my happiness to be able to stay up there a little longer. But I didn't want to make a scene. I had ivermectin. The first day I went up there, I had said to the nurse, I said to the nurse, I need to talk to the doctor. Doctor comes out, chief of ICU. I need to give her ivermectin. We need to give her ivermectin. I have it in hand, prescribed by a doc. I've taken it. It's not going to kill me. It's not going to kill her. And her answer to me was, no, we, take a, we took a Hippocratic oath not to hurt anybody. So we're not going to give her, we're not going to give her any of that stuff because you know it's going to hurt her. I said, this is compounded for human consumption via a pharmacy in the United States. 
based on, on her weight, I said, you, you need to let me put it, give it to him. You need to give it to him. No, no, we, we can't do that. So I'm still fighting with, the, you know, trying to find a lawyer to present the articles, a complaint to a judge in New Jersey. So this is going on. I'm finishing up my, uh, finishing up my stays, go outside. I would pray. I told you, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a devout Catholic. I would pray rosary to our blessed mother. I, people from the church would come and pray outside her window. So while this is happening, um, I, as I said, I had ivermectin in hand, I have the lawyer I'm working. They're talking to me about what they're trying to do. And they're telling me that my wife is not uh, responding. We're giving them a sedation vacation. We have her sedated because of the, of the, um, the ventilator. And um, when we bring her out of sedation, she's not following, you know, commands, simple commands. Her eyes are not following her fingers. Well, we put her on paralytic. And she was also sedated. How do you come out of paralytic? What does that do to your lungs? She doesn't allow you to breathe on, on your own anyway, right? So, and, I, and I'm going to say right here, since I'm on camera, I can't confirm that it was a paralytic because I haven't gone through every bit of her 1,400 pages of medical records yet. I'm still in the process of doing that. I hadn't actually had a live nurse in northern New Jersey go over. She's a wonderful person. I won't mention her name. She hasn't given me permission to do so. But she went through her rec my wife's records and she's pointing out the anomalies. As a matter of fact, my wife's cardiologist. I told him, I said, you can't do anything to my wife uh, as far as uh, cardiac is concerned unless you bring the doctor in who's still a privilege at the hospital. And I come to find out later on that I, I know they changed her cardiac medicine, but I come to find out later on that the doctor never was called in to talk to my wife. And there are nine pages of documentation in my wife's medical records that says the doctor was called in and the doctor signed off on it. It turns out that my daughter has the same cardiologist. She's the same cardiologist. And he asked my daughter, he said, Sarah, how come your mother didn't come in? And Sarah said, this was about a month after she passed on. And Sarah said, Doc, my mother died in the hospital. I was like, what? And she said, yeah, you were supposed to be called in. Then they call you in. He said, I never went to see him one. Those were his words to my daughter. Now, I don't know. If he's not under oath. He's not here to defend himself. But those were his words. Okay. Those are the words that were told to him. Yes, circumstantial, because they were told to me by my daughter. But he told my daughter, my daughter's not going to lie to me. Mm -hmm. My daughter's truthful. She would never do it. All of them. All my kids. Are. So I didn't know that till later on, until I found out later on. And I didn't know about the about the documentation of his of his notes in the medical records like until later on. Documentation. Well, that's what it seems as though. I can't prove it right now, but that's what it seems. That's what it seems. The only way they'll be able to prove it is to get the doctor under oath and the doctor would have to, he'll have to explain it. So it can come out, could come out in the end that, yeah, he did go in, but he forgot. Or it could come out in the end. It's like, yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't see him. I didn't see her, rather, and I didn't put those in there. So I don't know. I'm not accusing them of that. All I'm saying is there's an anomaly in there that needs to be checked out, and that's what I'm 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 trying to do right now. It's being part of this 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 group that you are here trying to bring exposure to and make the rest of the country and the world know. So we are trying to get. I'm going up on the on the on the on the on the floor. And they're talking to me about sedation vacations, about she's not responding. In the meantime, I'm getting phone calls from a doctor who identified himself. I won't use his name, but he said, I'm her doctor. Okay. 
what's going on? What are you doing? Well, it's, you know, her condition is very dire and she's, you know, it might be time for you to consider the alternatives. What are you talking about, doc? Who are you? What is your name? Well, he gave me his name. I said, well, what capacity are you there? And he wouldn't say it. I said, what, are you a palliative doctor? Palliative care specialist? I said, she's on an event. This has happened two days. She's on an event. And now you're already calling me as a palliative care specialist. He wouldn't confirm that he was. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not saying that, but there's so many inconsistencies here. So I said, don't call me anymore. You want to, I said, have a real doctor call me, the doctor who's working her case, and I'll talk to them about her case. So I got periodicals with regard to this. And I do know there is an annotation in there where he did say, yeah, I talked to the husband and he didn't want me to call anymore, but he ended up calling later on anyway. So I was able to set up a phone call. My daughters were able to set up a phone call with my wife's doctor. All six of my children were on the, on the call and myself and the doctor. And we got it through the nurse, the nurse, uh, the chief nurse set it up for us. And it's a different doctor. I think, I don't know who you are, doc. Who are you? Well, I'm your wife. I'm your husband. I'm your wife's physician. And I'm your mom's physician. So, okay. Well, what capacity? Well, I, I'm in charge for total care. Turns out he was a senior palliative care specialist. And his job was to try to, in my mind, in my mind, his job was to try to convince us to take my wife off the vent. I think this happened around, she was on a vent for a total of 12 days. I think this happened around day six. My kids will know this better because they, they remember it better than I do. I still was very foggy from my infection from COVID. Okay. And I, till this day, I'm still suffering from long COVID anyway. That being said, some of the things I remember that were discussed on this conversation were the doctor said, your mother's disintegrating before our eyes. And my daughter said, what did you just say? You, she's disintegrating? Well, that I didn't mean disintegrating. Okay. All right. So what did you mean? Well, her case is deteriorating. Okay. All right. So there's a big difference, Doc. We're not, we're not stupid. We know the difference between disintegrating and deteriorating. And I went on, we caught him off guard. We caught him off guard with our, with our questions. We said, look, you need to give her ivermectin. You need to do this. You, you know, turns out that after looking at her records, they stopped. She, as I said earlier in, the, in this interview, she was on hydroxychloroquine for her, uh, uh, one of her pre-existing conditions. They reduced the level. She was on vitamin D. She was on vitamin zinc. They reduced the amounts that she was taking. They changed her cardiac medication. Okay. One of the one of the warnings on her particular cardiac medication was do not stop this medication uh, prematurely, quickly, quote, as we know in layman's terms, cold turkey. If you do, one of the side effects could cause a heart attack. So I get a call in the middle of the night. Mr. DeLuca, your wife had a little bit of a cardiac issue. Um, we need to we need to install a pacemaker. What? We need to install a pacemaker. What do you want us to do? It's like, uh, well, this was, we, were, we already had, we had to do it. We did it. But we just wanted to let you know, since you hold, you hold power of attorney. Well, I said, well, you already did it, right? They said, yes. I said, well, is it helping her? Yes. Okay. All right, fine. But what caused it? Well, she had a heart analysis. It's like, okay. And I didn't know this about the medication until later on. Then a little, a couple of days later, I get a phone call. Yeah, Mr. DeLuca, it's like four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning. I could be off on the time. And they said, yeah, your, your wife's, Suffered a pneumothorax, so lung collapsed. So what happened? Well, we had to reinflate her lung. Well, what caused it? Well, we're not really sure, but she suffered from pneumothorax, but we were, we were successful in reinflating. So I went up there. I went up there. 
then that same day that she suffered the pneumothorax. I think this is around the 8th. I think this is the 8th of October at the time. And the floor was a mess. There were, there were bloody sponges on the floor. I'm like, what's going on? But I was more concerned about her care. And a lot of the nurses were, were curt with me. A lot were very kind and distant, but many were curt. And they kept telling me over and over again, well, this wouldn't have happened if she was vaccinated. And like, my doctor, her doctor told her not to get it. They advised her not to get it. One doctor advised her to get it. The other one said, I don't think you should get this because of, you know, your asthma. So it, it, it comes to neither here nor there. The confusion around this was just ridiculous. So bringing it to a conclusion, I was never able to get the lawyer I went through several lawyers in the in the state of New Jersey to try to represent the complaint that was had been completed and written by the lawyer in New York. I could never find a doctor that would allow me to give her ivermectin. If I could have gotten into her room, I would have put liquid ivermectin in her drinking tube. I was afraid though that they would arrest me and which in hindsight, so what? But I wanted to be able to be with her. And I get a call on Sunday, the 10th of October, just prior to mass. It says, Mr. Luke, your, your, uh, your wife is dying. She, you need to come. You need to come now. She's not going to make it. So what do you mean? Her kidneys are failing. So, all right. So it turns out that I have, I've acquired all of her imaging, medical imaging from the time she went in the hospital until she died. And, Yes, I'm not a doctor, but all of the images show, and I had nurses look at these, all the images show clear lungs. Until I get a call, and I am backtracking, I get a call in the middle of the night. Well, your, your wife's developed uh, a MRSA infection in her left lung. What? Yeah, she's developed MRSA infection in her left lung. So she's on vancomycin, which is a high-powered, antibiotic, which is what they need to kill MRSA, but one of the side effects is it can cause uh, kidney failure. She had already finished a five-day course in remdesivir that my wife told them that she didn't want to have, and I don't know, her records show that, her records do show that she said she acquiesced to remdesivir, but I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all, because we had that conversation before, and, and she was a smart girl, and she knew the, the ramifications. I had several articles, even one published by the NIH in June of 2020s, do not use remdesivir. I have that paper article. I printed it out because I knew that someday it was going to be taken off and you can't find it on the internet right now. Okay, so I had it. So she knew it. So they gave her the remdesivir. So coupled with that, coupled with the vancomycin, and I saw her films and her films showed the progression of the day they called me, the MRSA infection, and showed how far it progressed in the lower lung all the way up into the mid to, to upper section of the left lung. And so on that morning, uh, they called me and they said, you know, she's, she's going down. She's down. So I went in right away and her heart rate, she was almost in, her heart was almost in fibrillation mode. She was just, just going like this. Her oxygen saturation, which had stayed high, stayed high. It had never dropped below the eighties before, you know, into the, below the mid, you know, never, it never really dropped out of the eighties at all. It was down 82 consistently. I actually had asked them to give give her uh, an encephalograph, you know, for to see if there was brain function, and they said, "Yeah, we gave it to her, um, but it's not it's not really showing 
you know, normal function. But but that's not true. That wasn't true. But again, I was physically trying to recover. I was emotionally overwhelmed at the time. And you're talking to a guy who's been in, in and out of combat before. I was emotionally overwhelmed. At the time, you know, obviously your wife, you know, it's yeah, you know, it's your loved one. It's someone, it's your life. I was, I've been married to her for 41, 44 years. So I'm there and they finally let me in because, and I think I mentioned it earlier and I'm going to repeat it. I'm there one day, I think six, day six, I'm talking to the ICU doctor and I'm, let me in. And um, I, I, didn't, I don't think I mentioned this. Maybe I didn't. This is the day before. This is Saturday. I said, you need to let me in. You need to let me talk to my wife. You need to let me let her know that I'm here. She said, well, she's sedated. And, you know, and under, I said, her ears are still working. I know that for a fact. She can still hear me. So she needs to hear my voice. And that was one of the arguments my daughter used when with the, the floor nurse to let me come up. So the doctor says to me, no, 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 Mr. Glick, you can't go in. She has COVID. She's, she's, she's uh, contagious. I said, doc. She got it before I did. She gave it to me. And she says, well, we follow strict CDC guidelines. I said, if you follow strict CDC guidelines, what are you doing talking to me this far apart with masks on? I said, you're letting me up here. I'm over my COVID. It's been the 10 days and the four more. It's been 14 days since I've had it. I said, you, she's had it before I did. She contracted it around the 14th or 12th or 14th of, of September. And I know I said that earlier. So the doctor said, no, she didn't. And the nurse comes, checks the records and comes back and says, no, doc, I'm sorry. Mr. DeLuca is correct. Mrs. DeLuca has had it in 14, uh, 21 days. So I said, so she's outside of the period of contagion. You need to let me in. You need to let her. So the doctor said, and I said, if you follow strict CDC guidelines, you'll know she's no longer contagious. And they said, all right, come back tomorrow. And then that's when I got the call in the morning. Uh, she's done. So I went up. They, they they geared me up in the PPE, and it's ridiculous because and I, I got this, my facial mask on, and I walked in, I took the mask off because it was ridiculous. We're both at COVID. We're both at Delta, you know. And I'm in there, and I'm talking, and I, and I, I called the kids, FaceTime, all, all six kids on FaceTime. Son-in-laws son that were able, son-in-law was able to be, future son-in-law, daughter-in-law, grandchildren, all on FaceTime to say goodbye to their mother. And uh, my son kept saying, Dad, her kidneys are failing make them put her on dialysis. And that's the first thing I said, put her on dialysis. No, I'm sorry, Mr. Deluca. She's too unstable to do that. She won't survive. She won't survive. She won't survive. She won't survive ringing in my ears. And she may not have, but you know what? Try. I could look at you and say, you tried to save my wife. Thank you. But you didn't. It, it, it wasn't you. But in the end, it was. So I was holding her hand and when I told you we have 12 grandchildren and mm -hmm. when the kids were younger, my wife's name is Colleen and I affectionately named her Leany. Um, three of my college buddies that I was still kept in contact till this day, they would call her Mama Leany because she would always cook and she was Mama at a young age and she would always cook for them. And so the grandchildren would hear Leany and they couldn't say the L when they were younger and it affectionately became Nini. So they, they called her Nini all the way up until they're I, I've got a I got a 25 year old granddaughter still called her Nini, so I looked at her and I said, "Lena, I I I can't do this to you." And she squeezed my hand. She still she heard me. She heard it all the time. I've been praying over her, and she squeezed my hand as if to say, "It's okay." 
We'll pull the men out that you died within 30 seconds. All because they didn't want to do the right thing. You know what? I, I believe that. I believe that. Somebody from the outside looking in might say, you know, this sounds like an emotional story that, you know, you just conjured up and you're looking to, you're looking to go find a reason why your poor wife died and your poor family was so sorry that you're grieving, et cetera, et cetera. But it was COVID. She died. You know what? I had COVID three times. I know I had Delta. I'm, I'm pretty sure I had Omicron A and I know I had Omicron um, was the one I had, had in August of 22. I, um, at the time, I think it was Omicron 5B, I think. I think that's what it was. I know, I had it three times, and I survived. I took ivermectin, and I survived. And then they might say, someone might say, well, her pre-existing conditions cause it. Her records show she was coming out of her illness. They show she was coming out of her illness. She went downhill when they put her on the vent. She went downhill because of the vent. Hospital records show they overpressurized her oxygen vent. She got mercy from either the tube they used to intubate her or the vent itself. She got mercy from that. They changed her cardiac medication. Those things just don't make themselves up. No. They don't make it up. Those are those are concrete facts. She was she had a good immune system, even though she was sick. She was taking hydroxychloroquine. Why would you why would you limit the hydroxychloroquine? We know why. We're hearing the other doctors out here saying it, the FLCCC doctors. They're saying, why would anyone reduce the usage of hydroxychloroquine? We know it works. I had a doctor tell me, I said, I'm going to use ivermectin. And he said, no, no, the studies, the studies don't show that. And I said, okay, how about the village in India that 94,000 people took it, not one of them died. Not one of them died of COVID because they took ivermectin. And the answer came back was, well, that, was because their genetic pool was so tightly closed. But that's not what the mechanism that ivermectin uses. How did, how did the, and they repeated it in here, how did all of West Africa survive taking the anti-malaria pills ivermectin? It's the cheap, it's cheap. It's been used for six decades. It's known not to hurt people, but they use they use the, the argument, we will take an oath not to hurt anybody, so we're not going to give them that. Oh, yeah, of course. If you go out and you and you take horse paste, you're going to get sick or die. If you go out and you drink Drano, you're going to die. But there's chlorine dioxide out there, not going to kill you. Ivermectin, proven, not going to kill you. Hydroxychloroquine, proven, not going to kill you. Overdoses, it's a different thing. But there's doctors who are supposed to manage that. She was on 400 grams of, uh, 400 milligrams, 400 milligrams, not grams, of ivermectin, I'm sorry, of hydroxychloroquine twice a day. They dropped it to 200? Why? No reason. They gave me no reason. So I guess what you're saying is I'm agreeing with you, that, you know, all because they didn't do what was right. Uh, bottom line, a series of events that your wife went in was about to get out. I think so. I think so. That they, it's like a, it's like a table. You sit somebody down to eat, and you want to get them as quickly out as possible to put the next one in. And it led to a series of events, whether negligence, uh, purposeful, or ignorance, that all compiled and took your wife's life. I would also add to that discrimination because she was unvaccinated. Yes, absolutely, 100%. I was going to be in the process of this, this 
this this entire thing, I was I was going to be fired from my job because I wouldn't take the, the shot, and I knew it. I was cleaning my desk after the point, and I I actually my company was very gracious, allowed me to file. I should say gracious, very loud, allowed me to file for a religious. They call it an accommodation, not a religious exemption. So that, and I I got it. I was awarded my a religious accommodation, and I thank my company for doing that. But at the same time, why would I have to be? Why would I have to fight for that? Why would I have to fight for that? Why would I have to fight for the use of medicine that we know is not going to hurt anyone? Why Why would you not just look at what's happening with the patient, take the information? Why put her on a vent when she didn't need a vent? She didn't need a vent. According to her medical records, I I mean, I'm obviously, the doctors are going to say, hey, I, I took, a, I went to medical school. You know, I took an oath. I went to medical school. You didn't, Mr. Duluki. You didn't go to medical school. She needed a vent. Okay. Did you overpressurize the vent? Well, who 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 ordered the oxygen levels to be increased? How does she get a pneumothorax? She couldn't can't breathe for breathe for herself when you're on a vent. She's on a under sedation and most likely a paralytic. So how did she how did she get a pneumothorax? It, it doesn't make any sense. So well, David, I really appreciate you coming out here telling your story. So. Dustin, thank you so much for doing that. Um, you have my contact info if you ever want to contact me down the road. If you need a somebody contacts you and says, he said it was wrong, I never said this, and you need a correction, I'll be more than happy to contact. You know, I'm not trying to hurt anybody right now. I'm just trying to get justice for my wife. You know, justice on this earth, not justice in heaven, but justice on this earth. I know God said vengeance is mine. <laughs> Nobody else's. And that's correct. And I don't wish anybody harm. I just wish they would stop doing what they're doing. I can't help my wife now, but I can help others from being murdered. And I hate to say it, I don't trust the medical profession anymore. There's some doctors out there that I do trust. There are many of them out there that were trying to fight for me and loved my wife. And so those people, kudos to you. Thank you. God bless you all. But still, I, I can't. I mean, my trust and faith in the medical profession is gone. Hit the tubes. All right, Thank mind. you so much. Thank, Thank you so you. much. You take care now. God bless you. Take care. Well, everybody, don't go away. We'll be right back. Coffee, awesome apparel, but above all else, Freedom First. That's what you're going to get when you visit FreedomFirstShop.com. Support independent media like Battlefront Broadcasting and Freedom First Network. Use the code BATTLE at checkout, B-A-T-T-L-E, and support independent media. Help us to inform you and give you the truth, because that's what you got to do. Support us. Hi friends, Dr. Mark Sherwood here. And I'm Dr. Michelle Sherwood. Not everyone can make an appointment with us, but you can receive many of the same educational benefits our patients receive through our most comprehensive course, Health Secrets Exposed. Modern healthcare, or should we say sick care, is more focused on profit than your health. And in this course, you'll discover what sick care has been keeping from you all along. Here's a hint. You don't need more medication. You need the simple truths in this course to unlock optimal health. Health Secrets Exposed is usually $149. Now it's just $99 with your promo code. It's time for you to learn what Big Pharma doesn't want you to know. Get access to this course now at Sherwood.tv.
Welcome back to the BFB Live Field Report. I am Dustin Carter, still here at the Halt, Halt, Halt Hospital Homicide uh, event here in San Antonio, Texas. We're going through with some victims and, and talking about the issues there so that you guys can get the truth. And right here, we got another one here who lost two at the same time, Charlene Delfico. I got it right that time, right? Del, well, Delfico, right. Delfico. I, I lost my father and almost lost my mom. Almost She's a survivor, yep. Okay, so we have a one of you lost and a survivor. But, right. Well, let's start there with your father then, uh, Charlene. Tell us a little bit about what happened. Uh, so uh, the same day, uh, both my parents went into the hospital, and uh, they wouldn't let me in. Uh, I was um, told I had to leave the emergency room. And I tried to get somebody on the phone. I couldn't get anybody on the phone. There was no updates. And, uh, not, you know, my, my, my folks were out of it. And uh, I, I knew something was wrong because they weren't even really responding to me at home. So when my, so when they came in, they, they came in through the ambulance and, um, pretty much immediately I got a call in a couple of hours that they wanted to put my stepdad on a ventilator. And I said, no. And then I had to call the rest of the family and have that discussion. And everybody said, well, you know, because they said, if we don't, you know, put him on the, you know, the, the, the ventilator, then he's going to, you know, probably have a heart attack and he's not going to survive. So they made me feel like it was the only thing in order to get him, you know, give him a chance. And so uh, I said, okay, we all agreed. Okay, we'll, we'll put him on the ventilator. And uh, so, once they put him on the ventilator, uh, we did discuss, you know, medication. And I do not recall them asking if if they could put him on remdesivir. I found out what I recall as a pulmonologist that was taking care of him, saying to me a couple of days later that he had to take him off the remdesivir because his his kidney functions, his his lab work was not good. So. That's, I mean, and he said, he said, this is a crap drug. I don't know why the hospital's using this. So he took him off, but I had to be prepared to follow up with the ICU team because they seem to be known to go ahead behind the doctor's back and start up medications or do what they want to do, not the doctor who's the leader, uh, you know, of the team. So I said, well, you put it real big in the chart. I don't want him on that drug. So, um, so, so far they didn't, but, but they did give him several sedatives that I never gave permission. Uh, they put him on fentanyl, uh, he was on midazolam, he was on propofol, and, uh, there was another one, uh, it begins with a P, I can't recall the name at the, at, at this moment, but it was another sedative. So they were giving him all these sedatives. He's on a ventilator and, um, in a couple of days, they gave him a flu shot. Like, why would you give somebody a flu shot when they're on a ventilator? All their labs are, are really bad, and they're concerned about the flu vaccine. So a number of things that they were doing. Also, they had him restrained, which they did not tell me about that. Why are you going to put a person who's on, like, four different sedatives why are they even going to need to be in restraints? So, you know, I don't know that they hydrated him. 
Um, I know that they, you know, gave him some food supposedly, but it, it was very hard. And, and so I was getting updates, uh, two to three times a day, I would call over there. And the day before he passed away, there was a nurse that got on the phone and, and my dad was doing okay. I mean, he, they were, they were getting ready to, you know, take him off the ventilator and he was doing good. And then all of a sudden I get this nurse and he's telling me my dad is up 80% reliant. First he said a hundred percent reliant on a ventilator. I said, no, 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 that's a, that's a mistake. Cause I've been following you know, what's going on with him. You're making a big mistake. So he put me on hold. He checked. Oh, no, no, I'm wrong. He's on 80%. So I, I didn't like the way he was handling the conversation. And then he started lecturing me saying, you know, your folks should have been vaccinated. Um, uh, they should have been vaccinated. Were you vaccinated? Do you live with them? Do you have COVID? And I'm like, wait a minute. This is none of your business. How dare you lecture me? about my dad's on a ventilator, my mom's up on the floor, and they're not doing good. So I talked to the doctor, and I asked the doctor, I said, is this the process with, you know, what the what the hospitals want their nurses to talk to the family like this? And she said, oh, no, he probably wasn't doing that. He's probably trying to educate. I said, no, he's lecturing me that my parents, basically, the sense that I got from him is that is that they deserve what's happening because they should have been vaccinated. And so I said to the doctor about an hour after, I said, I don't think this nurse has the right mindset to take care of my dad. And um, the next day, my stepdad passed away. And they actually, the night... The next day, that night, they called me when he was coding. And I had to, they kept me on the phone while he was coding and they were counting down that his heart stopped and they said they're trying to resuscitate him and she's counting down. She's saying, okay, it's been two minutes. His heart still hasn't started. And uh, now it's four minutes. I said, I said, what are you doing calling me? My dad's coding. You should be focusing on him. And she just kept counting to like seven minutes. And um, so his heart started. And then um, she said, let's get him comfortable. And then, um, you know, we'll, we'll call you back and let you know how it's going. Well, when the, the doctor called me back, he coded again. And then he did the countdown again for four minutes. And they got the heart started again. And then they called me back and they said, well, they said, um, this is a pattern and, uh, you know, do you want us to uh, continue resuscitating? And uh, I said, I said, well, what do you, you know, what do you mean? She says, well, she says, you have to decide whether you want to let him go, uh, you know, or we continue, continue to do uh, compressions. And she said, I, just so you know, he's probably in a lot of pain and we probably broke all his ribs. <laughs> So it was cruel. Uh, I, I do think that because I spoke out about this nurse and his behavior and they knew that we weren't vaccinated, that this was intentional, you know, and I had asked his doctor that was taking care of him because I thought well, maybe I had an ally 
you know, in the hospital because he was against the remdesivir. And I asked him, I said, is this usual that when a patient is coding, the doctor's going to call you on the phone and count down? And he never heard of such a thing. So it was definitely, in my opinion, intentionally, you know, to upset and teach me a lesson. So he passed away. Now I had my mom in the hospital. She was on supplemental oxygen. And I had to focus on her. And uh, I did not want to tell her that my stepdad passed away. Because if I did, she was not well. And she was having her struggles. And so I, I, di I didn't tell her. And I told the hospital staff, you are not to tell my mom that my stepdad passed away. And they weren't married. Mm -hmm. They were together for... 25 years um but i was his medical poa and um you know my mom so they couldn't because of the hipaa logs so while all this is you know he passed and all this is going on every day i'm i call i write notes down and i say um you're not to tell my mom i told all the doctors i made sure nobody told her so my mom's in the hospital. She's on like two liters. All of a sudden, she's going up to six, and she's going up. And the thing of it is, is at the time, I didn't realize that they weren't giving her water, and they weren't giving her food I until I started. See, because of my mom, I couldn't get her on the phone for days. I had to rely on the words of strangers on how my mom was doing. I couldn't get her on the phone. I kept calling the hospital phone. I, she wasn't picking up or there was a problem with the line that went on for like two weeks. So I got her cell phone and I brought her cell phone in, in, in the hospital and I wasn't allowed to visit this whole time. I never got to say goodbye. To my I never got to be in there to see what they were doing. And so, so Anyway, I tried to get my mom on the phone. The nurses weren't really cooperating. They weren't calling me back. The doctor wasn't calling me back. I got to the point where I started catching on. And I and I and and so whoever I would talk to, I would say, please message the doctor. Please message the doctor. And so he was getting five pages every day. And then he got the hint that he needed to call me. And so he was calling me back. Um, but they switched. It was the brother, and then it was the one doctor, and then his brother took over the last couple of weeks. So, um, so as we're going along, my mom's call starts calling me on the cell. The hospital phone still, I couldn't get her on the phone. Um, so she started calling me. I'm so thirsty. I'm so thirsty. I need water. I need, I'm so thirsty. And this was all day long. And so I had, I was, I kept calling. I think I kept calling and screaming and say, why is my mom not having water? And I would have my mom, when I got her the cell phone, I would have her do a panoramic view so I could see, you know, what was going on because she said she, she doesn't have the nurse's button. And I thought, let's let me take a look and see. And I saw no nurses button. So to sort of sort of fast forward, this was like an everyday thing where, you know, I water, water, water. And so 
I had to, I, I got one 10 minute visit because I pushed and they wouldn't let me in the room. They had me gown up and wear, no, they had me wear a mask and stand outside the hospital and talk on the telephone with a mask. I wasn't allowed to take a mask off. So for all my, all my mother knew, who was this? Because they, they started turning her against me. Yeah, when she came home, she didn't know she could trust her own daughter. It was. It was Does she think that you were making this happen? They they were talking to her, like saying things like, you know, she doesn't care. No, she didn't talk. And then and then my mom would hear them say to me, she doesn't want to talk to you. And my mom was like, that's not true. She was just very sleepy, but there were times where they were just saying that, and they didn't even. My mom could hear them talking, and she never said anything. So they were just really kind of, and I and I really think that that was part of breaking her down. Yes, because they were also um, shutting the lights off in the room and closing the shades. So my mom would be sitting in the dark. Could you imagine that? Thirty days of that. So now she's in the hospital. Let's say three weeks went by of all this back and forth. I got I got a lawyer and fought for uh, visitation rights. I only got one visitation, and it was an outrageous cost, but I did it. So I called her doctor, and I said, I'm, I'm coming in Friday. This was like a Wednesday. I'm coming in Friday to um, see my mother. I want you to take the isolation off. She's in isolation the whole time. This is three weeks in, and they still had her isolated. And, um, and if you look at the records too, you'll see the infectious disease doctor, he would say, uh, for subjective, um, and subjective is, is, you know, what's your, what's the doctor's opinion about what he's saying and, you know, and examining. And he would say after three weeks, he would say in the notes, um, saving, didn't enter the room, look through the, look at the patient through the window and, um, and saving on PPE for self, self-safety and to save on PPE is what I saw continuously through her, through the notes. I mean, this is an infectious disease doctor. He got into this business. It's 21 days into her hospital stay. She's not contagious at this point. And when I requested her doctor uh, to take her out of isolation, he said, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 21 days. Oh, she should be out of isolation. So he put the order in to take her out of isolation. That was a Wednesday. So Friday was either Tuesday or Wednesday. So Friday I was going in. And before I was going to go in, the doctor called me in the morning. And he was pissed because they didn't take her out of isolation. They denied the doctor's order to take her out of isolation. And I, it was, I'm not sure who did that. And that's something I want to find out. Who denied my mom getting out of isolation after 21 days? So then I go in and uh, the doctor told me that morning that uh, he also called because it just so happened that my mom on that visit when I was coming in said, I'm not, I refused her medication and said, didn't do PT. What's the point? I'm not going to make it out of here alive. 
And so um, they called in a psychiatrist and they did this whole thing. And um, and um, so um, they he called the head who makes the decisions on the visitations and they, the head said, okay, we'll give her 15 minutes every day. And then when I got in there, somebody canceled those visitations. And I don't know who was canceling the visitations, canceling her iso- getting out of isolation. And it, and it was just, it was crazy. So the manager, the you know, patient advocate came in and said, we're sorry, but we'll let you stay for three hours today. So I stayed there. Now, when I got in there, I find out that um, I see all the food because every day I was bringing her food because she was like, oh, I'm so hungry. I'm so thirsty. Yet, yet they're telling me she doesn't have an appetite. Uh, she's not taking her medicine. I'm, you know, and and the the, the problem is, is that she had bed three she had two bed sores and a and a wound deep tissue injury they never right they never they never told me any of that i i found out when i went in there first they told me there was one because i did facetime with my mom and i could see she was in excruciating pain i said what's going on so the nurse says oh she says she's got a bed sore I'm like, oh my God. But when I went in the next day for the visit, she had two bed sores and a deep tissue. It was bad. It was so bad. So she was in a lot of pain. And so what was happening was they weren't paying attention to her. She was a she was afraid to eat because she was so thirsty. She was afraid of choking. And she was by herself. Uh, they weren't helping her open the containers. They were just leaving it. And then the table was out of reach um i asked why are you keeping water from her because i have a picture the the bed the table that goes over the bed where the water was up against the wall so i was calling nursing i'm screaming at them like why you know is there a limit and there's not they were just keeping water away from her so that's why you know the with you know the food and all that but when i went in i looked for the nurse's button it was hanging up on the wall all the food that I'd been bringing up to my mother for the whole week, I found in a bag in the closet. And that's where I found the hospital phone. It was in the closet. So no wonder why my mom wasn't answering the phone. So, and then they stole the charger to the cell phone because I brought the cell phone up. They took that. So it was just, and I brought a tablet because they said they would set up this tablet so that she could you know, look, you know, at some shows I thought that could help her mood, but she was declining very bad. And, um, so they gave me the 15 minutes and the, the psychiatric reports, I mean, they were all saying she needs her daughter. And here's the thing. They, they wanted me to tell her my mom is on the edge. She's like not eating, not drink. What's the point? And they are demanding that I tell her that my stepdad's dead. The nurses filed an ethics complaint against me because I wouldn't let them tell her. How does he died? And how do they file an ethics complaint against the patients? Because the nurses said that I was causing um, uncomfortable 
for them that when she they said she was asking my mom's like i wasn't asking she said i was i she said i had a feeling and this is what the psychiatrist said like they were re- reporting in there that she, they feel that she she had a, a she thought that he may have passed away and it was doing psychological damage to her and that they they recommended me coming in and being there every day to tell her and to be able to consult her and they didn't care they canceled you know my visits and um and they knew it was doing psychological harm and so they filed this ethics complaint and i i the patient advocate called and told me about this and they wanted they wanted um my medical POA, like the paperwork to have on file. And I was looking for it and I couldn't get it out of my mom because she was not there to really, you know, she was a little out of it. But anyway, she, um, they told me that, you know, I know you have a brother and it's you. And if you don't have the paperwork, the hospital could take over your mother's medical care. So I felt like that was a threat. And uh, so... I told them no. I said, I said, you can't, you can't, you can't tell her it's a HIPAA law. And, um, but I, I, so they filed a complaint uh, against me and I got a call from a priest and the nurse manager about all of that. And, uh, you know, my mom wind up going home like a, a week later and I said, it's, you know, you don't have to worry about it now, but you know, like I found out like my mom, the priest went in her room. When he got the report for the ethics complaint, the priest went in my mom's room and he anointed her, but she thought that that was her last rites. So she didn't really know what was going on with the priest. She thought she was about to die. Right. She thought she was about to die. So he went in there days before that uh, visit of mine when she was declining like that. So they, this whole thing was like... I, I just can't help but feel the timing of it all. You know, it was, they wanted to just break, take her over the edge. So, um, so I, you know, it just, a lot of it just, uh, it, it, when they brought her home, like I said, you're not sending her to any facility, um, rehab facility she needed. And, I said, she's got to come home. But when she came home to me, she couldn't walk. She couldn't talk. Uh, she was having a hard time swallowing water because she just wasn't used to it. Right. She was on two liters of oxygen. And um, I had to tend to the, the the sores, you know, on her bed. But um, she did survive. But uh, I don't know how she survived because there were incidents, rapid responses that they didn't tell me about. Uh, the oxygen was the nurse came into the room. This is towards the, you know, in the middle of all this. So the uh, oxygen was found out of the wall. Now my mom's on telemetry. They're monitoring her. How did they not know that her oxygen was at 67%? The nurse came in the room every two hours and, um, and and said so she's delirious. She's delirious. Two, four, six hours delirious. All oh, her lips are blue. I better call uh, respiratory to come in and take a look. 
it was PT that found the oxygen unplugged from the wall. And uh, it was just one thing after another. I could go on and right now I'm just, I can't think of everything, but I have an audio uh, that sh- that is three minutes and um, it's her begging the doctor for water and to take her out of the restraints. They had the restraints on her from midnight. Here's the thing. They were saying she was anxious and she was taking her stuff off where she was sitting in urine and poo. Yeah, she wanted to get this off because she was cold and wet and they weren't doing anything about it. Um, but when the doctor came in the room, she was she was her restraint like this, not to the bed, right? They had her wrist to wrist, which is illegal. And the doctor came in and he saw that and he undid the um the restraints, but in the audio, he's threatening my mother. That if you don't behave, we're going to put you back in the restraints. And he also broke HIPAA law because he said to my mom, she was asking for Lou, which was a nurse that was taking good, decent care of her. And she was asking for him. And uh, and he took care of my stepdad. He knew. And he said, uh, you know, he said he's he's on a ventilator and he's not doing good. And he wasn't supposed to say it. He was very cruel about it. Very cruel. So, but they had her on the restraints for, for, let me see, midnight they put her on restraints and I think she was on them until like, well, 1130 took them off, but I think they put her back on the restraints. And it, what's the thing of it is, is they even put her on, they gave her a shot of Ativan at the time of, I mean, it just makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. They didn't need to give her the Ativan because she was in restraints and her oxygen was at 67%. Why are you giving her Ativan? She could not do much of anything with no oxygen. So it was just torture. It was torture. It was torture. These these tactics, I don't know if you know this, these tactics come out of the Tavistock Institute these are what communists used during the Vietnam War on soldiers oh. to make them hate the other soldiers, turn against their countrymen, and become subservient to the communist party. And those tactics, which they used on your mother, which is even more strange because they're trying to murder them. Yeah. It's honestly on you. Because you are are being broken, and you're not in their grip. So that's what it seems like to me, to all of you victims that I've heard here today. I hear the same thing. Now, more in-depth, like you have more in-depth, just like uh, David had more in-depth. Yeah. Some of them didn't get to be that in-depth like that, which is tragic for them, because they don't have this... They don't have the information like when you lose a child who's kidnapped and you never find them. And so you always are left wondering. That's what they have is that I'll say, but you have information here and you have power behind it. But what this is, is war crimes. And this has, it. they have to go to jail. And if not, put on the death penalty, in my opinion, because that's what they did to all of you. They, they were, they... They did like, they wanted her to go on a ventilator 
and I and I feel like and they kept upping and upping her oxygen. And she didn't feel I mean, there was even the another infectious disease doctor that went in there and said that there was a rapid response called for my mother. And uh and she went in there and she didn't the infectious disease doctor didn't know at the time that she went in there and she was having a conversation with my mother. And this is in the the records. She was talking to my mom and my mom was was responding to her, to her in full sentences. So was there really a rapid response? I don't know. I need help going through my medical records because there's things in there that I feel like I I know that are and even added disgrace of treatment that I don't want to say until I can get confirmation. But it's it's awful. I mean, I she had infections and I don't even it looks like they didn't even treat her. You know, and that's what they did to my stepdad. You know, he had a UTI when he went in. I saw no antibiotics so far. I still have to finish reading his. I I can't because I never had a chance to, you know, I hear all these stories myself about the ventilating and I actually had the nightmares myself and I didn't, you know, I wasn't there and I feel like I let him down, you know, because I couldn't get in there and let him know. Like he was probably wondering, where was I? Well, you know, it's just. I don't think that you need to feel that way because you didn't let him down because you battled for him. You didn't get to see it, but you. You gotta. You need to take comfort in this. You battled for him. You literally battled for him. What they did to him was not. Uh, it, it may have happened to him that way. I understand. I'm feeling it. But you battled for him, and you need to know that you did everything that you knew how to do. And now, also, you gotta understand. You're here, and you're doing this. You are making something happen in his name you you can't feel that that's way. why I'm, you're doing, I'm doing this you're doing you know. great don't it, what happened to him was because they were trying to hurt you and hurt everybody around him you had nothing to do with that you should never feel that way and these people are going to get what's coming to them i think in this so. life or the next it's coming i think so i know i'm never going to stop don't stop. No. Don't stop. And, and I know it brings these emotions. I didn't I didn't lose anybody. I was able to stop a lot of I stopped my parents early on. And it took a lot of fighting. But because I do this, they listen to me a little more. But my grandmother was done the same way and I never got to say goodbye to her. Yeah. Um, uh, and they, they took her in there and did all these things and she was on her deathbed by the time I got to see her because they released her to the hospice at home. And it was just terrible. And then she's all alone wanting to go home. But don't, you need to take cover in. You're, you have, you did everything you could and you have your, your mom. I have my mom. I mean, she's suffering pretty bad with, you know, PTSD. You know, one of the doctors diagnosed her with that. And I can't even get a psychologist. They don't call you back. And who can I trust at this point? How do I know who I can trust? Unfortunately, they put politics and they literally, they literally put a bounty on us. The people that are not vaccinated, they put a bounty on us. And, uh, 
I would say, you know, with my mom and my stepdad, um, you know, with my mom, they, they, they consult, you know, put in a consult for palliative care. Nobody ever told me anything like that. Cha-ching. You know, every, every step of the way, they were just making money. They put my stepdad on varsitinib. I never gave permission for that. So here's my dad with acute kidney um, injury, and they're giving them all these black box warning drugs that are just making them worse. Making them worse. Not giving them water, not giving them food. My mom was hiding food under the sheets, hoping that somebody would come in the room that she could ask, can you open this for me? I found all the food in the in the closet, and then they put it in the bag, and I saw all the sandwiches. I have a video. All the sandwiches that I brought up sitting in the baggies, in the bag, because they were, I don't know if they were transparent or it doesn't match up. And uh, and she was in there trying, and she was eating a muffin. She was hungry. It was just brutal, cruel, and uh, I'm not going to stop. I appreciate you giving us a voice, too. Because without people like you, I don't know how far we get. I mean, we'll we'll never stop. But we need people like you to help us get our story out. I just want to thank you. Well, it makes it more today. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on today. Well, everyone, thank you for joining BFB Live Field Report. And I'll catch you next time. This is Dustin Fall. Good night.